0: I'm Steve Becker. Um, I was a district court judge in Reno County, Kansas. Um, I followed that by a short um, stint in the Kansas legislature. And here's Beth.
1: I'm Beth White. I am a retired, I guess I could say retired, right? Retired person from uh, the Department of Corrections. I spent almost 10 years with the Department of Corrections, both in the facility as an officer, and the majority of my time was spent with parole, helping people reintegrate into society. And this is cleared.
0: Okay, in, in this episode of Cleared, uh, we're going to talk about an uh, older case, a case from 70 years ago. Um, and this case came to my attention um, a few episodes back. I reported on numerous um, contemporary exonerations, um, exonerations that had occurred during the month of November, November, uh, 2021, and one of those cases was the Groveland Four, and the little bit that I read about it in the news about the exonerations of the Groveland Four, um, it really stoked my interest and, uh, and I knew I needed to learn more about this. So I have chosen um, that case. Um, to talk about in, in this particular episode, the Groveland four Beth, give us some details.
1: Well, I feel like I start each and every episode this way, but this one was extremely difficult for me to research. And it wasn't difficult due to the lack of resources or information out there. It was due to how gruesome and vile the facts were in those resources. Um, Like Dad said, this is a 70-year-old case, and it's very hard for me sometimes to research cases that are this old with this much vicious details in them and just to be reminded that the racism and the misjustice and the corruption, um, and the outright murders were so live in a well and a part of our history. So just a little foreword for that. And as Dad said, today we're gonna be covering the Groveland Four.
0: And in response to your introductory comment there, Beth, I, would, I just wanna say briefly that uh, this occurred in, uh, it began in 1949, and yes, that is the Jim Crow era. And uh, I don't want our listeners to just dismiss this case because, yeah, that, but that was in the Jim Crow era. You, This case cannot be dismissed that way. Um, if we have time uh, near the end of the episode, I'd like to talk about... Jim Crow, but, uh, yeah, I just wanted to state that. uh, Don't dismiss this by just saying, yeah, but that was 1949.
1: Well, and honestly, when you think about it, it's not that far in our past. You know, I mean, some of my parents were alive during that time frame. Wow. That's weird to think about. We're not even a full generation removed from this yet. So... Early morning on July 16th, 1949, Lawrence Birdoff was getting ready to open his family's cafe. It was just a short ways out of Groveland, Florida, which was in Lake County, and it just so happened to be the citrus capital of the world at that time. There were lots and lots of orchards around, and people of color traveled from states all around to travel to S- Groveland just to work in these orchards because there wasn't a lot of work around Uh, It was really hard, physical demanding labor and they were not paid well, but it was just an abundant job resource for them. So like I said, early morning on the 16th, Lawrence is getting this cafe ready to get opened and he's waiting for a shipment of food. He keeps looking out the window, waiting for the truck to show up when he notices a young woman out there. She's very nicely dressed, put together, her hair is in place. She doesn't look upset or worried. She looks very calm. He goes out there to ask if perhaps she's waiting for someone. She says she's not. And he invites her inside for a cup of coffee, which she agrees to. They go inside. He gives her a cup of coffee and she starts talking. She said that the night before, her and her husband were driving and they had car trouble. Her husband got out to try and fix the car when four black men approached. They ended up getting into a fight, knocking Willie out, and they took her with them. She says that she wasn't injured or hurt by them, but she really wants to find her husband. She asks Lawrence if he'd be willing to drive her to where she thinks the car may be just to see if her husband's okay or if he's still there. Lawrence agrees. They get in his car and they drive to that area. And they were there for just a few seconds when Willie, her husband, pulls up in his vehicle. Norma gets out of the car and goes and embraces Willie, and they get in the car and drive off. Norma and Willie Pageant were a young couple. Norma was only 17 years old. They both came from poor families in the Groveland area, and both their families worked in the orchards. They had gotten married really young. I mean, 17 young already, but at that point, they had already figured out that their marriage wasn't going to work. There had also been several reports of Willie abusing, physically abusing Norma, and they had separated. Willie was trying to do everything he could to get Norma back, and that's why he had asked her out that night on a date. They get in the car and they drive back just a few short miles to Groveland, where they're from, and they go and speak to the local sheriff, Willis Virgil McCall, the sheriff of Lake County. Willis was a self-made man. He was a son of a dirt farmer, which we had a long discussion about what that meant earlier than the podcast. He had started his own hog, farm and had successfully sold it by the age of 30. With that money, he made a run for the sheriff of Lake County and he was elected. By all accounts, he was not a very nice man. It seemed like he was pretty racist. Uh, A lot of the research that I did, I get the feeling that if people of color or blacks were able to work their way out of the orchards where they didn't rely on that type of hard physical labor to get by, this is something that really bothered him. There were several reports of orchard workers not showing up for work and the sheriff going to their house, breaking in, beating them, and jailing them just so they could get them back to work. It was believed that McCall did this because he was doing, air quotes, what was the best thing for Lake County. Citrus was their money. That was their livelihood, and he was elected to do whatever he could to support that. Willie and Norma began telling the story to the sheriff. Only this time the story changed a little bit instead of Willie getting knocked out by the men and the men taking Norma. This time she had been raped by all four of them. Both Willie and Norma said it was so dark outside. They definitely didn't recognize the men and they couldn't even give any kind of description. Keep in mind, Willie and Norma are both white and the four people they are accusing are black. Despite them providing no description of the men, the sheriff instantly thought of Samuel Shepard and Walter Irvin, two army vets who had returned from the war and hadn't gone back into the orchards like they were expected to. Sammy's family, the Shepherds, particularly, kind of irked Sheriff McCall. Both the Irvins and the Shepherds were able to work their way out of the orchards like we talked about earlier Shepard's family even owned their own land, which was something that was not common for Black families in that area at the time. Sheriff McCall went to the Shepard house to talk to Sammy, and when he got there, he found Walter there, too. Walter and Sammy's family had been lifelong friends. In fact, even just a few days before, Walter and Sammy's siblings had gotten married to each other. Their families were really close. They arrested both the men there, and instead of taking them to the police station, they in turn took them to a field where they began beating them for nearly 20 minutes, telling them the entire time, confess now or we're not going to stop. They beated them with their fists, they kicked them, and they used billy sticks too. Still, neither of the men confessed to this. At this point, law enforcement officers had two black men arrested. In order to fulfill the storyline that Norma and Willie had given them, they needed to come up with two more. The next boy they landed on, unfortunately, was 16-year-old Charles Greenlee. He had just arrived in Groveland the day before with an older coworker, Ernest Thomas, who had promised him work in the orchard fields. As they got into Groveland, Ernest was going to take Charles Greenlee, the young 16-year-old, to his house to meet his family and have dinner. Charles didn't think this was right. He wasn't dressed appropriately. He was really dirty, and he didn't want that to be the first impression his family had on him. So instead, Ernest dropped Charles off at the train station. He said he would stay there overnight. Ernest gave him some money. Excuse me, he gave him some food, promised to come back the next day with some clothes. He also happened to give Charles his family pistol. Charles said he first thought it was a joke, but ended up taking it anyways. Charles hung out at the trade station all night, sleeping when he could. At one point, around 2 to 30 in the morning, he got up to get a drink. He had taken the pistol out of his backpack and placed it in his waistband, and he walked to the nearby filling station to the water fountain to get a drink. As he was getting a drink, he heard the watchman coming. He stood up and looked at him, forgetting about the gun in his waistband. The officers instantly saw the gun and decided that they needed to detain him until the next day, just to make sure that law enforcement didn't have anything on him. He was taken to the jail where he was booked. So the sheriff sees that there's this new young boy in town, black man, with a gun. So he thinks, I'm going to bring Norma and Willie to see if they recognize him. They bring Norma and Willie, keep in mind this is the very next day, to the jail. Willie says, absolutely not. That's not any of, he was not with the men. That's not him at all. Where Norma says, I don't know. He kind of looks like one of them. And again, Willie says, nope, that's not him. Apparently this was enough for Sheriff McCall to detain the young Charles Greenlee. They also were looking for Ernest Thomas. That was going to be their fourth man. Ernest, having heard of this, had already left town. Once they had the three in custody, they would take turns, they being the sheriff, his deputy, Yates, and a group of local men in the community would take the men into the basement of the courthouse where they would take turns beating them and torturing them. They would suspend the men in the air by hanging them with their wrists bound above water pipes and they would beat them. They would also break Coke bottles and place underneath their feet. So that way, even if they were trying to get some sort of relief from their shoulders from being tied up for so long, the second their feet would touch the ground, they would be punctured with these broken bottles and glass. Horrific. They did this to the men until they were broken and bloody and then they would drag that broken and bloody man up to the cell, throw him in with the other two to scare him. Eventually, Shepard and Greenlee confessed. Later, they said they thought they had to or they thought they would be murdered. Walter Irvin never confessed, despite being brutally attacked in the field and despite being tortured in the basement of a courthouse. The sheriff quickly spread the word that he had gotten confessions from these black men, and that very night, two to three hundred locals stormed the jail, demanding that the men be handed over so they could lynch him. Sheriff McCall was already well aware that this was going to happen and had already shipped Walter Irvin and Sammy Shepard off to a local prison just a few short miles away. He told the mob as such that they weren't there and they didn't trust him. So the sheriff had Willie come in just to verify to the mob that they weren't there. They did, and the mob went away. Now, unfortunately, this is the story, the first one that really made it go viral, whatever viral was in 1949. And wouldn't you know, Sheriff McCall was painted as a hero. He was the one, the fast talker that was able to talk this lynching lynching mob away. When we know there's nothing progressive or wonderful about Sheriff McCall. The very following day, another mob formed. Only this mob was full of the Ku Klux Klan members. Again, Sheriff McCall was aware of this. He was well-informed on the Klan, air quotes, because wouldn't you know, the head Klansman at the time, I.B. Hall, just so happened to be one of the locals that was down in the courthouse basement torturing these young men. It was believed that Sheriff McCall made a deal with the mob, that they needed to do what they needed to do and then they needed to get the heck out. And that's just what they did. The mob burned a majority of the black family's house and ran the majority of black families in that community out of town. They also burned down Henry Shepard's house. That's Samuel's dad, the one that owns the property. And unfortunately for Henry, this wasn't a surprise to him. His house was frequently vandalized by people in the community Because keep in mind, he's a black man owning property. This pissed off his white neighbors. Henry would go to Sheriff McCall looking for some sort of relief with this vandalization. But of course, he was always denied. So come Monday morning, all the black families are gone. The community has no one to work in their orchards, which means they're losing money. This is not a good situation for the sheriff. So he agrees to call in for help. The National Guard come. And one one officer who just happens to be there was interviewed that day. And he said he set up a machine gun right there at the town entrance. And his words, not mine, a bus full of rednecks came in. They got out. They saw the gun. This particular officer ordered his officer to shoot warning shots in the air. And he said he's never seen somebody run so fast in his entire life. And that ended the violence with the mob at that time. So, July 20th, just four days after the event, four days after this event was alleged to have taken place, the prosecutor goes before a grand jury and gets indictments on all four of the men. Keep in mind, they only have three in custody. So, at that point, Sheriff McCall organizes a posse, which at one point grew up to 1,000 men to find Ernest Thomas. This went on for several days. Ernest was able to evade them by running through the woods and wilderness. They eventually found him resting under a tree and did not try and apprehend him, but instead opened fire. His autopsy reported he was shot over 400 times. Keep in mind, he wasn't convicted of anything.
0: Let me interject here. Uh, Beth, you've, You've done a wonderful job of introducing us to these these four individuals, and while you were telling telling their stories, it's just I don't know incredible about how things played out, and particularly with Charles Greenley, the sixteen year old the from poor, out of town,
1: innocent, naive little sixteen yeah, year old. Yeah, I mean, yes.
0: He comes, he comes to town. He's new in town. He comes to town the day of
1: the crime, honestly, just a few short hours before he's at that train station.
0: Wow, it's I mean, yeah, when <laughs> poor Charlie Greenlee. He just got swept up. And then that was one of the things I wanted to mention, too. In in our past episodes, I have talked about law enforcement identifying the suspects and then with tunnel vision focusing only on the suspects. And this is not the result of investigation or... um, eyewitness accounts or anything. And here it is. It happens again in this case. Um, McCall, Sheriff McCall, uh, immediately focuses on two black families that he doesn't like and that none of the white population like because they are property owners. Um, But my goodness, Beth, they're... They're vets. They're mm-hmm. military veterans. Yep. They have returned to their small hometown. Groveland is uh, is really a small town. Um, they have returned to this small town, and um, they don't go to the orange groves and work where they are supposed to. Yeah. Again, your air quotes. Um, so they're right there law enforcement targets uh, who they want to be convicted of something like this. They uh, Sammy Shepard and Walter Irving, you know returned from um, returned from service, their military service and like you said before uh, we started the recording, uh, they probably came back with some self esteem. Yeah. Holy moly. That can't be allowed. Yeah. And uh,
1: not only are they doing well, but they're happy. How dare they? Yeah. 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 He needs so, to put a stop to that.
0: Okay. So we sweep up, Sheriff McCall sweeps up these two individuals from families uh, he doesn't like. Uh, we've got poor Charles Greenlee, 16 years old, staying in the train station at night because he didn't want to go to his friend's house because he was all dirty. And uh, if they're going to sweep up Greenlee, then they're going to go after Thomas, Ernest Thomas, who brought him to town and who was known to law enforcement because he'd been in in legal trouble before. None of them, <laughs> Pat, none of these four were a suspect due to an investigation. Yeah. They were, the suspects were identified as four black people. And then McCall gets to pick his four black suspects. Well, he
1: knew the two he wanted to get rid of. And then the other two just happened to be convenience, I feel like. <sighs>
0: makes me so angry it there. does it's it's really but hard so to does research our other episodes so. yes okay
1: it's really it's really hard to research when you see we're not that far removed from this and just how rampant the racism is it's just it's it's sad it's really sad okay so please continue yes while they are out forming this posse murdering ernest thomas shooting him 400 Times 400 times did they shoot him. At least that's how many wounds he had. So who knows how many times he was actually shot. Keep in mind, this is a posse of 1,000 people looking for one man. Um, anyways, I digress. While they're doing this, Norma just happens to go to the doctor to be examined. The sheriff finds out about this and is not happy because, of course, the doctor can't find any evidence of any kind of assault happening. He can't find any sperm anywhere inside of her. There's no visual issues as, like, bruising, tearing. There's nothing, nothing to indicate there was any kind of anything happening. Uh, So Sheriff McCall pays a visit to this doctor where he essentially says he will not be needed at the trial and please stay away. The mob, the thousand... Men mob that shot this poor man 400 times. At this point, this case was really starting to stir up a lot of media, and that's when the NAACP got involved. Um, They hired Harry T. Moore, a young attorney, and thankfully for him, he took it upon himself to go interview Charles, Walter, and Samuel at the prison where they were being held. He found out about the torture that they endured and made the brilliant decision to have medical professionals come in and note out every single cut, abrasion, scar, bruising. And when you see the report of all of the injuries these men had, because keep in mind we're not we're still like a week out from all of this happening. This is very fresh. Um, it, it's disgusting. They also took pictures of all of these injuries and bruises. Uh, He also, Marshall Thurgood got involved with this case. Uh, You probably know him, first Brown v. the Board of Education, the first black Supreme Court justice, uh, a brilliant legal mind. And because of the NAACP, Henry T. Moore's work with documenting all the injuries of the men, it really kept a spotlight on this case. And a lot of scholars have said that because of the spotlight that was on the case, it's the only reason that these men weren't prematurely lynched up outside the courthouse. During this time, they found a really hard time finding any attorneys to represent the three. Keep in mind, it was four, but they've already murdered one person. Uh, They couldn't find anybody. There wasn't any local black attorneys with the experience, and none of the white attorneys obviously wanted to touch it because this is a case of a 17-year-old young white woman being accusing four black men of raping her. Luckily, they stumbled upon a local legislator Who agreed to take the case? Um, His name was Ackerman. He took the case knowing full well that this was going to end his political career and make it very, very difficult for him to ever practice law again. He had just, he agreed to take the case just one week prior to the start of the trial. Um, He hadn't even met the clients yet. He petitioned the judge for some sort of delay or continuance in the trial, which they granted three freaking days. They gave him three days. He hasn't even met the defendants, his clients, three days. They gave him three days. And during those three days, a hurricane came through, phone lines were down. So it was virtually wasted time anyways. He was able to file motions requesting that the torture and all the documentation of the injuries and bruises on the men be entered into evidence Uh, for the trial. That was denied. He also petitioned the court for a change of venue because, hey, maybe this local county is not a very impartial place for this trial to be held. Again, it was denied. The prosecution was really ramping up for the trial to start. And that's when local law enforcement officers started arresting family members of the four. And one should know it because they didn't want them to compliment the case. Heaven forbid they have sort of any evidence or alibis for these men that could really muck up what they're trying to do here. They mostly focused on Charles Greenlee. Again, that's the poor, sweet 16-year-old man's family because they wanted Greenlee to turn on Irvin and Shepard. Greenlee wouldn't do it. They even had his mom come to the prison to talk to him. And he said, mom, I'm not going to lie just to save myself. I'm not going to do that. And he ended up writing Walter and Sammy a letter saying as such the next day. So the trial begins. The prosecution led with their strongest witnesses, really their only, only evidence in this case, which was Willie and Norma, They did a good job. Norma seemed to eat up being the center of this trial and offering all the media attention on them. They also presented Walter Irvin's pants, which they claimed to have semen stains on them. Keep in mind, they did no testing of anything. It was just someone said, "Eh, yeah, that looks like semen. And they entered that into evidence. And they also had a cast of footprints recovered from where the crime was alleged to have taken place. And it just so happened that that cast of footprints matched a pair of Walter Irvin shoes that they took from Walter's house the day he was arrested. The defense had nothing, nothing. This poor attorney Ackerman hadn't even met with his. I think they said that he had met with each client for a total of 30 minutes before the trial came. He had nothing. He was completely unprepared. He wasn't aware of Lawrence Burdoff's testimony, the one we opened with, the local clerk at the cafe for his family who saw Norma that day where she said nothing had happened to her and she looked perfectly fine and not upset. They weren't aware of the medical examiner who couldn't even find evidence the assault took place. However, Ackerman was able to get some help with Greenlee. All three of them went on the stand, and really, Walter and Sammy were so unorganized with their testimony, it didn't do much to save them. However, Charles Greenlee, keep in mind he's the young one again, he did really well on the stand. He came off that nervous, naive person that he was. It was very clear he was not familiar with courts or anything having to do with it. He testified about the night that the crime alleged to have taken place, including all the happenings of the watchmen. He was able to recount what those watchmen at that train station did the entire night. Ackerman, the attorney, was able to point out that it couldn't possibly have been Charles, as he was arrested at 3 10 a.m., 16 miles away from the spot where the crime was supposed to have taken place. And keep in mind, Norma said the Crime took place at 315. So unless there's some sort of Harry Potter traveling thing going on here, it's not Charles that was there because he was in the jail. And Norma had already previously testified that she was attacked or forced to incur the rape because of the pistol and identified Charles pistol as the one that was the one that she was attacked with. The jury then went to deliberations. Judge Even told, called up the defense attorney Ackerman to specifically point out a door behind his bench. And he told him, once the jury comes back, I want you and your clients to go out that door. That way, he was going to hold the crowd in the courtroom for at least 30 minutes so the men could get out of town before the crowd was after him. Everybody was that sure that they were going to return not guilty verdicts. But wouldn't you know, the jury came back in no time flat, guilty on all three death for Walter. Death for Samuel and life in prisons for Charles, the one that couldn't possibly have been, been there because he was sitting in the county jail. They decided that they needed to have leniency for him. Go figure. The same day as the trial, and keep in mind at this time, this trial is huge news. It's being covered everywhere, not in, just in Florida. There was a couple of black reporters covering the case, and on their way out of town, they report being chased by a car. Uh, The car was coming after them super fast, and they really didn't think they were going to get out of town. At one point, they even passed a white man on the side of the road trying to wave him down, but they just kept going. And as soon as they crossed that county line, the car stopped and they were fine. Of course, the sheriff and all the locals deny any of this taking place. But later, it's confirmed by an FBI investigation that, yes, in fact, this did take place. Before the three men were transported to the prison, Sheriff McCall wanted to try one more time to get confessions out of them. He has a recorded confession with Charles Greenlee in which I, it, even the confession, when you listen to itself, it sounds so forced and just weird. And Charles later says that it was a script given to him by McCall and that every time Charles would pause when reading the script Sheriff McCall would just lightly tap the gun on his waist as some sort of threat to him. Either please say what I wrote or otherwise you're going to get this gun. And why wouldn't he believe him? Shoot. They've been having these men in the basement, abusing and torturing them for days. So after the first trial ends and the three are taken off to prison, the attorneys immediately file appeals. They only file appeals for Walter Irvin and Samuel Shepard with the Supreme court they make the choice not to file an appeal of Charles Greenlee. And they did this because they were afraid if they did, if they were able to successfully be granted a new trial at that point, Charles would be above 18. He would lose sympathy with the jury and would be ordered to the death penalty. So they made the decision that since he already had life in prison, that's the best he could hope for around that same time in August, 1949, Um, the FBI started an investigation to what was going on due to all the media coverage and the reports of all this horrible stuff, especially um, that Henry Moore, the one that had the sense, excuse me, Harry Moore that had the sense to go in there and record all their injuries and what had happened. Uh, Their report concluded in early 1950 that the men had been tortured. Keep in mind, this is a report by the FBI. The men had been tortured and their civil rights were denied. They referred the case to the U.S. uh, U.S. attorney, who was a known racist. He agreed to take the findings of the FBI to a grand jury. um, But of course he presented this evidence to the grand jury and they failed to issue any indictments for the sheriff or any of the deputies involved in the torture. That same year in May of 1950, the Florida Supreme court denied their appeal.
0: Wait, what? (laughs) What?
1: Denied their appeal. They denied the appeal? Yes. This
0: takes me way back to the beginning. Before the trial began, there were some pretrial motions filed. How about a change of venue? Yes. Groveland, at this time, not today, but in 1949, Groveland was a small community.
1: A thousand people. There you go. A 1,000 people. We, I was fortunate enough to find a lot of this information from a PBS documentary, which I encourage everyone to watch. It was called The Groveland Four. Uh, it was produced in 2013, I want to say. That, that's beside the point. Um, I encourage everyone to watch it, but do watch it uh, with the notion that you're going to see a lot of horrible things in there. But yes, continue. Uh,
0: yeah, a small-town Groveland, and this crime triggered these mobs where the white community burned down the homes of the black residents. The Ku
1: Klux Klan, yes.
0: And ran all the, well, ran the black people out of town. Yeah. And the defense attorney thinks that might justify a change of venue.
1: No, that's not what the judge no. said. It's fine. well.
0: Surely the
1: they could be impartial. Surely
0: the Florida Supreme Court will see that that was a big error. Mm.
1: Uh,
0: no, it's it's so sy- systemic, Beth. The whole system is. Infected. Yeah. The whole system has the virus. Mm-hmm. It's.
1: Going along with you, with your point there, uh, the FBI was talking about how they obviously knew that these men were tortured and their civil rights had been <sighs> abused. Uh, and they forwarded it to the U.S. attorney, and the U.S. attorney presented it to the grand jury, and he failed to issue indictments. And there's that not, there's nothing they can do. And the FBI was kind of pissed about that, but all their legal remedies were done at that point. They didn't have any other options.
0: Every time that we move to the next stage in your story, Beth, each stage makes me angry. No,
1: just wait. Just wait. No. I'm pretty
0: angry right Just now. Just
1: wait. Hold on, because it's getting a lot worse.
0: Let Bring it on.
1: Okay. So, Florida Supreme Court denied appeal. Uh, Marshall took it immediately to the U.S. Supreme Court, and a new trial was given. The sec- there you go. The second trial date was stated to start on November
0: 1951. Okay, so...
1: And again, like you said, they overturned based on jury selection. Obviously, it wasn't an impartial juror of their peers, for sure. Duh.
0: No, it was an all-white jury who had probably been burning homes a few days before. Yeah. Yep. Okay, but United States Supreme Court
1: overturned. Gave, yes, yeah. overturned, overturned their
0: convictions and ordered a new trial. Yes
1: slated to start November 1951. So right before the trials set to start November 1951, little Sheriff McCall, being the air quote good guy that he is, takes his personal car to go get Walter Irvin and Sammy Shepard. Keep in mind they're not including Charles Greenlee because they did not uh, pursue appeals for him because they didn't want to risk him getting the death penalty. So the so sh- took
0: his personal car where?
1: To the prison in order to transport Sammy Shepard and Walter Irvin back to the county for the trial.
0: So he's transporting the two prisoners yeah, him by his Im- personal car.
1: Him by himself, yes. So it's obviously why wouldn't you do this late at night when it's dark? So he goes, he gets them, and according to Walter, he stops twice, and he stops the car, he gets out, he kicks tires, he gets back in, he drives a little bit further, he stops, he kicks the tires again, and at this point, according to Walter, he orders them out of the car because they need to change his flat tire. At this point, the sheriff pulls out a gun, shoots Sammy Shepard straight in between the eyes, he dies instantly.
0: And these are statements made by Walter Irvin. Correct.
1: Correct. He then shoots Walter while he's in the car. He pulls him out of the car. Walter? And Walter. He shoots Walter in the car because Sammy was, they were all sitting in the front seat of his vehicle. Uh, Sammy was on the outside by the door. Then it was Walter. And then it was Sheriff McCall. So Sammy gets out first to change the tire. He shot instantly, straightforward shot, headshot right between his eyes, dies. He then points the gun at Walter, shoots him in the car, drags him out of the car and calls deputy Yates saying, you need to get here quick. They tried to get away and I got him good. He tells deputy Yates, you need to get as many people here as you can right away. Deputy Yates. And keep in mind, this whole narrative is from Walter deputy Yates gets there and he, Walter remembers deputy Yates coming over, shining the flashlight. Oh, excuse me. He calls Deputy Yates, tells him to get here. Then Sheriff McCall turns to Samuel Shepard, shoots him again. When Deputy Yates gets to this scene, he shines his flashlight on Walter Irvin and said, "He's not dead yet. We need to do something about this quick." Where they shoot him again in the neck.
0: Walter. Then, that's the third shot, Walter. Takes. That's the
1: second. They shot Sammy first, and then right. after after McCall called for Ye- Yates, he shot Sammy again, and then didn't shoot Walter that time. Walter then remembers hearing Sheriff McCall ripping open his shirt, and then all the, I don't want to say posse, but then the other men that they hand-selected to come to the crime scene come to the crime scene, too, and witness all of this. By some, I don't know... Divine.
0: Oh, he rips open his own shirt.
1: Sheriff McCall rips opens his own shirt. Yes. Yeah. By some divine intervention, Walter Irvin is able to survive. He survives that night. The emergency surgery where they're pulling the bullets out of his body, uh, and he's in a hospital, plugged into all sorts of tubes and hoses. The sheriff hears about him surviving and immediately orders Deputy Yates not to allow anybody in to see Walter, which Deputy Yates does. He doesn't let his poor mom come see him. He doesn't let his attorney come see him. But he does let the prosecutor of the case come and see him. And at this point, pretty much everybody in the community who heard this story were calling BS on it. There's no way it happened the way it said it happened. And the first thing the prosecutor asked Walter when he entered his hospital room was, did you rape Norma? It's a weird question to ask right away. And Walter, he's the one that's never confessed despite all the torture, says, no, I didn't rape her, which immediately shook the prosecutor to his core because he knew this whole story about them getting away and shooting was BS. And he was beginning to question if they were guilty of anything at all. The documentary I was talking about, that PBS documentary, has this one, they have two photographs of one of Walter lying in his bed shortly after the crime, because it was a crime, took place, and he's got all these hoses hooked up to him, and he's clearly not in good shape. And then they have a media clipping of the sheriff laying in a hospital bed just a few doors down with his glasses broken and his kids sitting on his lap and his wife there just looking like he's the trooper that he is that managed to save the day. So at this point, uh, the county itself, Lake County, ordered a commission to review what had happened And the commission was comprised of the people that Yates and McCall handpicked to come to the scene that night, wouldn't you know? And that commission said, yeah, he didn't do anything wrong. It's fine. It's fine. It's all good. It's all on the up and up. Well, the FBI also did an investigation on what was going on there. The FBI concluded that, yes, it is possible that McCall's shirt, the way it was ripped, was ripped by the wearer, and that one of the slugs for the bullets was found underneath Walter, which meant somebody had to have been standing directly over him when they shot. So they concluded that the events that Sheriff McCall said happened probably didn't happen the way they did, but yet, it didn't reach a level where a grand jury needed to be involved, huh? Like, what? Wh- what do you mean? You're saying it didn't happen the way the sheriff did, and that it's very possible he just up and murdered two people in front of you know? But no, we don't need to call a grand jury just yet. So, that's what happened with that. Now we're down to two of the four has two already being murdered.
0: Well, really, we're down to one because greenlee is out of the picture yes he's not part of the appeal he's not part and therefore he's not part of the second trial um mccall took care of sammy shepherd so really now the The focus is on one survivor
1: yes and god man when you think about everything this poor man has endured you know what i mean being shot twice, being strung up in the basement of a courthouse, and the irony in that—someplace that's supposed to uphold justice and the law—and he's strapped in the basement, being freaking tortured. Uh, it's it's gross.
0: But he's going to trial again.
1: Yeah, and I will say a good thing—a one good thing that came out of that incident. Is a lot of Sheriff McCall's supporters, even people that had supported him from the beginning, really staunch supporters of him and everything he did, particularly with newspapers um, and reporters, were very much anti and questioned him from that point on. P- particularly the prosecutor, he didn't he he knew that was all false, but he still prosecuted the next case. Uh, after this incident, Harry Moore, do you remember the one I talked about? The yeah, in, I remember The Harry. NAACP yep. uh, attorney that had, had the wits to document all the injuries. He went on a nationwide tour at this point, really ramping up, um, spreading the word about how corrupt this town was and everything that was going on. Uh, he got back to Groveland uh, and him and his wife lived there. That's where they resided. Him and his wife went to bed one night, and shortly thereafter, a bomb exploded, killing both of them. The bomb was placed under their floorboards, under the bed that they shared. Um, it was never really investigated, but it's very heavily believed that the Ku Klux Klan was involved in it and local law enforcement officers. In fact, when the FBI was asking around people in the community who they thought would want to kill Harry Moore, do uh, you know the first... Name that came up on everyone's mouths, came out of everyone's mouths, Sheriff McCall. So not that it was ever investigated or nothing was done with that, but it was very widely believed that he possibly had something to do with it. So the second trial obviously didn't happen in November because one of the suspects was murdered and the other one was sitting in a hospital bed. The second trial then began on March 11th. They did grant a change of venue just 20 miles away from Lake County. So that's going to be significantly better, I'm sure, uh, prior to the trial. And at this point, uh, Marshall Thurgood was the prosecutor for the case. uh, And the prosecutor at the time presented a deal for Walter Irvin. He said if he just admitted, pled guilty, that he would be receiving life in prison. This was presented to him, and he talked it over with his family, and he said, yeah, I guess that's the only way to go here. Uh, And then he was talking it more over with Ackerman and his other attorneys that were helping him on the case, and he said, so what does this mean? And he said, well, it's simple. You just go in and plead guilty. He said, well, does that mean that I committed the rape? And they said, well, yeah, legally, that means you committed the rape. And at that point, he changed his tune. He said, I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do.
0: Walter, Walter, Walter.
1: God, what a survivor. So the trial begins. Uh, The prosecution presents the same evidence. At this point, Norma's a little bit tired of all the media coverage. So she's not as dynamic testifying, but she still gets out the point she needs to, that she was raped and these were the men and uh, how horrific it was for her. This uh, defense had time, adequate time at this point, to prepare for trial. They found several alibi witnesses for both Walter and Samuel, although he had been since murdered and wasn't there for the trial. And they also brought in an expert to testify that those shoe prints that they so heavily relied on by the car weren't typical footprints that you would find at a crime scene because the weight distribution was even. That meaning it was more like somebody took the foot and heel of a boot and pressed it into the sand opposed to somebody walking. Huh? Strange. The prosecution quickly shut all that down by asking how much he was paid and had convoluted the whole testimony. So all the jury remembered was how much he was paid, not the evidence and the science he was presenting. The second trial again resulted in guilty. And he was ordered to the electric chair.
0: Unbelievable.
1: And I should say, the deal the prosecution offered him was available until the jury got the case. So the prosecution reminded him of this before they handed the jury over, where Walter had just two, three minutes to decide, obviously knowing if he doesn't take the deal, he's probably going to be convicted again. And yet he chose not to take the deal. So, second trial over, found guilty, ordered to the electric chair. They again start all the appeals process. All the appeals are denied. They sign Walter's death warrant, and he's due to be executed the following week. His attorneys managed to convince the U.S. Supreme Court to issue a stay of execution to hear a petition for new evidence. And in that time, a new governor was in place, Leroy Collins. He took office. And he became a private champion for Walter Irvin. And in fact, he ordered his own separate independent commission. And I think I can't remember the exact quote they have, but the amount of news notifications and letters and everything that they were receiving about this case was outstanding. Um, so he issued this separate investigation in which it was just thriving with all the misconduct and horrible things that this local sheriff and his deputies had committed and how there was clearly not the evidence and how civil liberties had been. I mean, everything, everything we've talked about, the, the commission, this governor uh, ordered brought to light. And at that point he ordered that, well, on December 6, 1955, to be exact, he ordered that Walter's death sentence be commuted to life in prison. So, Up until this point, we're fighting to keep him alive. 1968, what, 10, 13 years later, Walter's released with no fanfare, with nothing. I mean, just blurb. He's thrown out of prison. He moves to Miami and moves in with his sister where she reports he was just the shell of the person he was. All of his teeth had been knocked out. He just, he wasn't the same man. He found work as a construction worker, um, and he returned a few years later to Lake County to attend a funeral of one of his family friends. He went out that night drinking with some buddies. They left him in the car to sleep it off, and they went to check on him in the morning, and he had passed away. He didn't have the happy ending that we all so much wanted him to. Now the only person left is Charles, Charles Greenlee, the 16-year-old. Just 11 years after he was convicted and ordered to a life sentence, he was paroled. And of course, same deal. No fanfare, no news, no media, nothing. He went to his family's home in Florida and he stayed there and had a wonderful three hours with them. And I say three hours very specifically because at that point he said it was getting dark and he was leaving Florida and never never coming back. He was afraid that the parole board or the prison would come after him again. And why wouldn't he be? He had been failed so many times before. He moved to Nashville where he moved in with his brother and found work there. And thankfully, I would say he, was managed, he managed to carve out a beautiful life for himself. He started his own business as a heating and air contractor, which was really thriving. He got married and had kids. He really did have the beautiful life afterwards. And wouldn't you know, just like Eddie Lowry and just like Jimmy Gardner, he always told his daughter that you don't hate, you just move on. You pray for those that made the mistake and did your wrongs and you move on. He didn't want to live his life full of hate. He passed away in 2012 at the age of 79, a happy man with a wonderful, loving family. That's the one bright light I would say. So, at this point, all of the Groveland Four are deceased. Um, sheriff McCall, despite all the stuff that's going on around him and all the investigations into him, was continued to be elected as the sheriff of Lake County. He was elected seven consecutive four-year terms as the sheriff.
0: I thought he had lost favor when he killed his inmates.
1: Not enough, Well, speaking of that, April 1972, Sheriff McCall beat Tommy Vickers. He was a mentally disabled black man who was being held on a minor traffic charge. Uh, He beat him and he died. Tommy died due to the beating he received by Sheriff McCall. Sheriff McCall was immediately removed from office and indicted for murder. He was found, not guilty, No. and then still ran for sheriff for his eighth consecutive, but... Fortunately, lost his bid for reelection. He died in 1984 at the age of 84 years old, having never received. I mean, I guess if you could say being on trial for murder, but not being convicted, he never received any of the justice that was coming his way. 2017, the Florida House passed a resolution acknowledging the injustice against Charles, Walter, Samuel, and Ernest, which I guess was just a good faith effort. I mean, what do you have to say about passing a resolution acknowledging the injustices? That's nice, right? I mean, obviously, it doesn't do anything to rectify anything, but...
0: No, but it's an apology. Yeah. The state, it's it's an official recognition that the state was wrong yeah that it is something uh, yeah come on well it's,
1: yeah yes let me finish these next two things and I'll say what I wish they would have done so January 11th 2019 the Florida clemency board grants post you may say it for me I can never say it after death post
0: posthumous Posthumously, See, you now have <laughs> me mixed
1: posthumously, up. Posthumously. Thank you. Pardons of all the men. And, um, Norma pageant shows up to this hearing. And when, you know, I would just really love to say that there was some sort of acknowledgement of her part on this, but there wasn't, she shows up to this hearing begging the board not to grant these pardons. Keep in mind at this point, all four of the men are dead. Um, murdered or died of old age, she says that no one knows how much she personally suffered over the years. That's what she gets up there and talks about is how much she personally suffered over the years. Um, and she still maintains those are the four men that raped her. And I'm not gonna, I mean, I'm not saying whether she was raped or wasn't, even though there was no evidence that she was raped. Uh, but there's clearly evidence saying it wasn't these four men, and for her to say compare the suffering she incurred to the 400 bullet wounds that Irma Thomas had, or the being shot straight through the eyes like Samuel. She- I don't. I don't even need to get into that. It's just that was disappointing to me. But yes, that was the first time she had actually spoke since Walter's second trial, and the last time she had spoke. And then November 22nd, 2021, just a few short months ago, the, the circuit court judge, Heidi David in Lake County, granted the state's motion to posthumously, I said it right that time, dismiss the indictments for Ernest Thomas and Samuel Shepard and to vacate the convictions for Charles Greenlee and Walter Urban. Did you find anything regarding why they filed that motion?
0: No, I did not. I, I was that pause was because I was trying to think what what led them to this exoneration because really we had nothing to report on the Groveland four yeah. until what, two months ago.
1: Yeah. Well, and the reason I ask because every all the research I did that it would bring up the same little bur- blurb from the district attorney's office where they reviewed the evidence and the evidence led them in this direction, which I don't know what that means. And this is so fresh, maybe a few years. I mean, this is the one thing about doing this case is this exoneration is just weeks old. So we don't have the information we do with some of the other cases where they were exonerated years and years ago. But I, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to find out what evidence it was that led to that exoneration
0: well maybe it was an acknowledgement more what were you going to say about the state's Uh, apology
1: okay so what I think they should have done
0: this is more than a state apology
1: True. true. I feel like there should be some sort of financial reparations made to their families personally
0: yes yes I do too but I I i'll quickly throw in that kansas has a law that provides reparations to exonerees
1: posthumously no no oh. see i don't know <sighs> i don't know
0: but yes they were exonerated
1: which leads me to which think is
0: and that's probably i mean the state issued an apology when A year in before. 2017, yeah, and uh, and the DA that was serving Lake County, Florida, in November of 21, looked at the case and dismissed it. Yeah, so
1: no, that is, I mean, because it, because I think I asked you at the time, like, what even brought all this about? Because at that time, I didn't even necessarily realize they had all since passed; that they were none of them were alive
0: what a story beth oh it's very good
1: it's so awful it's just i was so many times i was watching these documentaries and shows about it and i just had to pause and it's just like if i keep watching this i'm gonna cry i just need i just need a few minutes of cute baby jacks walking around or something to break this up because it's just so heavy
0: my comment i mentioned early in this podcast that I had some comments I'd like to make about the Jim Crow era, but our listeners have been with us long enough on, on this particular episode. I'm sure I'll have an opportunity to address that in the future. So, uh, wow. I, I really don't have anything more to say, Beth. You just did an excellent job on this case. Thank Thank you for that because I'm the one who picked these four, uh, because I knew the injustices that they faced were just incredible. And uh, you you did a very good job thank of you. presenting that to us. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you. Thank you again for listening. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us on Facebook at Cleared Podcast or Instagram at Cleared Pod. We'd love to hear from you, suggestions, comments, concerns, suggestions for new cases. Uh, Thank you for taking time out of your lives to listen to this. We always say it, Dad and I are so very passionate about this. And the idea that we're maybe spreading that passion on to somebody else is very exciting. So thank you. And until next time.
0: Assault City Sound Production.